Welcome back, and uh, a huge thank you to the local believers for that delicious supper. It was amazing. I enjoyed it very much. <clears throat> Probably would have enjoyed it even more if I wasn't speaking. Uh, and also to the handful of folks that gave me some constructive feedback, I appreciate that. And it was quite interesting to me that it was really all on the same line, which is we need examples from you. And, and I would just like to, to respond to that. Uh, hopefully not in defensiveness, but maybe even to challenge you a little bit on that. Is I think in some cases when you're suggesting that to me, you're asking me for your next set of rules. And as humans, we struggle with uncertainty. So what should this look like? But that's what faith is for. It's for the uncertainty. Trust in God that he will guide you, that he will lead your assembly. He will guide overseers. He'll lead you to the scriptures and so on. So I would be remiss to give you your next set of rules. In other cases, um, it is... You, you do address a real issue, which is I'm talking about the concepts and the principles and not actually giving you a tangible example. But if I picked an example, say I said my example today was that, you know, women no longer need to wear skirts in assemblies, gospel hall meetings, then you, you would leave thinking, well, Caleb thinks we don't need to wear skirts anymore. And that's what you would remember. And to me, um, that's, that's not leaving with Christ as our foremost point either. So, so while I, I'm happy to discuss issues with you in person, uh, we do have this task of searching the scriptures for ourselves. And so what I hope to be giving to you today is, is just the permission to follow Jesus Christ. John chapter 13, verse 34. <clears throat> I want to talk about being relevant to our brother and sister now. John chapter 13, verse 34. We'll pick up a verse that we've quoted already. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So now we turn to the task of speaking about love and loving one another, and uh, it seems fitting to do this in one's hometown, where a number of you in this room will be well advised on my own misadventures in this adventure of loving one another. And yet it is a fascinating topic and something that we're called to look into and to understand and to try to grasp and to do, to love one another deeply. This is a real challenge. How to be relevant to one another in love, how to be connected to one another. And yet we have a lot of what we're talking about in, in, in this, uh, the earlier session, this session and the next one, all in the verse here. When it says, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So all men will know, that's evangelism, that's reaching out to the community, that's tomorrow. You are my disciples, that's the previous message. This is how we glorify him, that we are his disciples through this act of loving one another. And the loving one another, of course, is what is before us now. And so I want to, rather than just telling you that you need to love one another, because I'm convinced that I would be certain that you already know how to do that, I want to get into the how of love, the how. <clears throat> and this has been my exercise for a few years in different uh, places that I've thought. How do we actually love one another? So come back again to this verse that's before us now and to this challenge of loving one another. He's saying here, the Lord is saying that people will know that you follow him, that you're a disciple of himself, of the Lord Jesus Christ, if they see that you love one another. And so let me issue the challenge to you this way. Let's say I was a local neighbor, and uh, let's say maybe I was a, a bit of an intellectual and an anthropologist by trade. I like to study people and to look at people. And maybe someone who was fairly well-read and knew about different philosophy and religions and so on and so forth, and maybe I'd read the Koran, and maybe I'd read the works of Confucius, and I'd read the Bible as well, just for interest's sake. And I walk into this building one day, and uh, maybe I you know, kind of missed the sign outside, so I wasn't sure exactly what I was walking to, but it's like it looks like people go there, so I want to see what they're doing. And I wander in, and I think to myself, I want to see how this group of folks operate together. How do they get along? 
What are they all about? What makes them tick? And so if I did that, if I was that neighbor and I dropped in for a week from what I observed in your relationships and your interactions in your assembly, would it become obvious to me that you must be the disciples of Jesus Christ? When I sit back, you know, having read the Bible and known a little bit, oh, these, these must be followers of Christ, I can tell, because of how they love one another. Would I, would I get that? Would I make that connection? That's the question. By this, we'll all know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, let me put it to you another way. Same, say the same kind of neighbor person, same kind of neighbor background, rather. But instead of coming to your meetings, I just listened to all of the ministry that you posted online and the messages, the recordings, maybe a Bible readings, if you're able to do that, and your gospel messages. And I listened to all of those recordings. And I said to myself, I want to try and distill what their core beliefs are. Like, what is most dear to them? Most dear. Most precious. Would I be able to conclude that the number one belief was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind? And would I conclude that probably the number two belief was to love your neighbor as yourself? Can I listen to all of your ministry and your teaching, your gospel, and distill that these two commandments were core principles for your assembly as disciples of Jesus Christ? It's very challenging, right? Could that actually be drawn out? And, and that it's actually practice. And this is, the, the Lord gets to this in 1 John, or sorry, John gets to this in 1 John. Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. So whether I'm observing your behavior or whether I'm observing your teaching, would I know that love is a core operating principle for your gathering? That's a challenging question. <clears throat> now, the early church was like this. It was like this. In Thessalonians, Paul says, We're bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. He knew that about them. He knew the love. And if your assembly had a Paul who was really interested in you as a group and kept in touch with you and served here when he could, when it came time for him to reflect on what, what was it about Fleetwood that made him thankful to God or Richmond or Fairview, wherever it might be, what was it about your assembly that made him thankful to God? Would love, your abounding love, would that be on the list? There's other examples. Epaphras in Colossians, it says, Epaphras declared to us your love in the Spirit. Ephesians says, I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. Thessalonians again, Paul says, Timothy come to us, has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love. So very clear example from the early church that love was a predominant feature. And Paul notes that in Philemon's letter as well. And John notes Gaius' love. So it's not just a company thing, but it's an individual thing as well. And there's more examples, but I hope you get that there's this burden of evidence because we want to follow this early church thing. We want to be like that first century church. But the burden of evidence points to the fact that it was really, really obvious that they loved like the Lord did. And that's our challenge today. And even in the closing book of our Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ in chapter 2, there's an assembly without love. The assembly at Ephesus that has left their first love. And that is such a severe issue that the Lord Jesus is saying, I'm going to snuff you out. I'm actually going to take that church right out of everything if that love doesn't come back, if that love doesn't come back. Love is so important. Love is so important. So then as we think about loving one another, we begin with our God, with God as our first love. That's really where the Ephesian issue began. Love for God, and then love for others will flow from that. And, you, and I just want to encourage us to think about this as a company now. If you were part of a soccer club, soccer would tie you all together. You would have that shared interest. If you were a cancer survivors group or a stroke recovery group, you would have the common bond of that shared struggle. If you're in a volunteer group for some local service organization, you'd have that common sense of purpose. But you know, when we come together as an assembly, we have a group of people interested in a wide variety of sports, or maybe not even interested in sports at all, from a wide variety of ethnic backgrounds, 
with different socioeconomic statuses, all sorts of careers and levels of education, different political views even as well. What is your common interest? What's going to be your drawing, your core orienting principle as a, as a gathering? And of course, this is touching back now to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your shared allegiance and love for him. Your devotion to him that comes from his love for you. This is what will bind you together. This is what will bind you together despite the diversity of backgrounds. And apart from that, there is really nothing else that holds us together. It's love for Christ. Our love to him is primary. And then from that flows our love to one another. So love is so important to just an assembly gathering and to maintaining and creating a sense of belonging within that gathering. And so I'm, I want to just begin, wanted to begin with this challenge. And will you take up the challenge to love God and to love your neighbor, to love your brother, your sister as yourself so that that characterizes you as a gathering? Is that a core value for your local assembly? Love. You know, there's other things that we think are precious and, and maybe are pretty important, but, you know, if you get unloving, elders are going to deal with you. That would be, would that be appropriate? How do you know it's a core value? How do you encourage it in your assembly? Now, you can't force people to love, but we want to talk about the building blocks of brotherly love. How do we do this then? Moving on from the challenge, how do we create even a sense of belonging? So the first thing is trust. We begin with trust. The first essential component of brotherly love is trust. It's interesting to know what the Bible says about trust. If you grab uh, the concordance off the shelf or doing a word search in the Bible app on your phone, the scriptures uh, promote the idea of unconditional trust in God. Trust God above all else. Uh, and I'm not even talking about faith unto salvation when I talk about this trust, but trusting God in the sense of the reliability of his character, his unwavering goodness toward us, his own moral imperative to do what's right for us, his capability to do good, his love, and so on. And you get these unqualified recommendations then, like here's an example in, in Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, with all your heart. And we can do that because God is a safe person. But when it comes to humans, the scriptures are much more cautious. Psalm 118 verse 8 says, It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. So, And just let me kind of prove this out to you. Don't worry, I'm, I'm going somewhere. And certainly there would be, you know, if I had a godless trust in man or a trust in, in others that was held over my trust in God, that's, that's soundly condemned in scripture. Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Does this mean then that we should never trust one another? And, and it might sound like I'm undermining my own case for love. Does it mean we should never trust one another? No. But to start with, we must not trust people more than we trust God. That's where this begins. But other than that cautionary note, trusting in other humans is not condemned by scriptures. And let's just make sure we get this right. One thing is immediately clear. The only ultimately trustworthy person is God. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are 100% safe, reliable, trustworthy beings. There's no exceptions to their trustworthiness. There's no doubt, no reason to doubt or to concern their trustworthiness. But it's also clear that to take the kind of trust that should only be directed towards God and to put that trust in humans is wrong. And really, that's idolatry. Don't trust humans to be your savior, either for things in this life or things in eternity. That's putting too much of your need on something with too little or someone with too little ability to deliver. But we can trust one another for finite things, for help, for care, for interest in us, we can trust one another for kindness and compassion. This is relational trustworthiness. And I think that the reason why the scriptures are not very directive about this, or not very, they're not pushing us to trust in other people, is because relational trust is something that we need to evaluate on a person-by-person -person basis. 
even with a particular person, like one other individual in your life, their trustworthiness can change over time for better or for worse. So for God to give us an unqualified command to trust other people would have put us at risk of, risk of injury and of hurt, and he hasn't done that. So instead, he's given us discernment so we can make our own evaluations. So think about me for, or think with me for a moment about what trust looks like, what it is. Trust is something that happens by degrees. It's an evaluation of my sense of your trustworthiness plus my assessment of the potential for damage or hurt if you betray my trust. We typically observe people for a little while and we test them little by little to determine their trustworthiness. And that's a healthy thing to do. But my own history as well comes into play in that process of trust encounters. If I'm a person that has been betrayed a lot, and this helps us to understand, uh, especially when we're shepherding some people that really don't commit, that don't trust, but that, that's what they appear to demonstrate. If I'm a person that has been betrayed a lot, you may be a trustworthy person, but I may not be a trusting person. So there may not be a great deal of trust between us, but then that ball would be in my court. But on the other hand, if, if you're not giving signals of trustworthiness and I am a trusting person, then the ball's in your court to demonstrate reliability and reliability over time so that my perspective of you can shift. So trust really gets balanced out on both sides of the relationship. And yet, ideally, inside an assembly, I should be able to voluntarily share private details with you and know that you will treat that information with, the value, the res- with value and with care and that you'll respond to that information in my best interest. In my best interest. This is how trust works. Another word that we often use is safety. Am I safe to open up with you? That's the question. If it's safe for me to open up to you, then the emotional bond that exists between us will grow stronger. That bond, that connection between believers, and that connection also in romantic relationships, grows based on safety and on reciprocal sharing. So if I share something with you that's very private and you never give me anything back, I'm going to eventually shut that valve off. The sharing has to be reciprocated. It has to go back and forth for the bond to strengthen. In an assembly context, we call this brotherly love. We call it friendship. In the marriage context, it's a romantic love. When we're nice to each other, maybe, but when we are nice to each other, let's say, but there's no real shared closeness, then we're just acquaintances. That's all that is. It's not really a friendship. So I... Again, I just want you to ask as you think about how you bring yourself to your assembly and even shaping the culture of your assembly. Is it a safe place? Are there friendships in your assembly? Is there a sharing that goes back and forth that's given and that's received? And I've challenged overseers and myself as an overseer and my other overseers even to this as well. And if I could just speak to overseers here for a moment. Do you feel safe with one another? It starts in leadership. If this is a challenge in your assembly, start there with just a small core group. Are your elders, as, your, as elders, are you friends with each other? There's things that, that, that we don't do. Like in my assembly, I would like us all to go fishing. Five men fishing. Because... Friendships are formed in the bonds of recreation as well. That's how these things get established. They can't all be formed, these friendships, when we're trying to solve how to help someone with whatever issue they're facing. We have to have these other contexts as well. As overseers, are you trustworthy in your confidentiality and your care and respect for the saints? Do you protect the vulnerable? And... Flowing from that, do the assembly members feel safe with you? Now, in defense, you can't automatically put the crosshairs on the oversight if you don't feel safe. Remember what I said earlier? Your own ability to trust is informed by the amount of betrayal you've experienced, especially the amount of betrayal you experienced as a child. So there are actually very trustworthy overseers and shepherds who will run into some believers that will never confide in them, that will never trust in them, and it's not because of a shortcoming on the part of the shepherd. 
That person has just had experiences where they can't place their trust in others. It's not, they don't feel that it's safe for them to do that. But generally speaking, in your assembly, as a, you know, culturally, <clears throat> as a group, is there trust between believers? Does it feel safe? Do you believe that you have each other's back? Does your assembly foster and encourage behaviors that deepen trust? Do you lovingly hold each other accountable for behaviors that undermine trust? Trust is so important. You know, the scriptures do speak of behaviors and sins that undermine trust. Let's go back to Colossians again for a moment. Colossians chapter 3. Behaviors that erode trust. In verse 8. Colossians 3, verse 8. But now you yourselves are to put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds. We just go down these words for a moment. Anger, in verse 8, this word is more like our English word for rage. Persistent anger. Not safe to be around an angry person. And then you have the wrath here, which is anger that flares up and, and disappears. It's more the random tantrum sometimes, or volatility that's just unpredictable. And again, it's not safe to be around and it's evidence of parts of our hearts that have not been brought to Christ for sanctification and for healing. These are behaviors that erode, that undermine trust. And then you have the word malice, which we don't use too often. But that is when you're hostile towards someone, and you're clear about your dislike to that person, and maybe even have told them you'd love to harm them, or you'd like to hurt them. That's malice. That's malice. It has no place in the life of a believer, even in the context of, ju- of justice. Malice is wrong. It's evil. And blasphemy, here, uh, the sense here is of abusive words that are falsely spoken, that damage another person's reputation. It would include everything from criticism to slander. Criticism is corrosive to trust. If If I hear you criticizing someone, and even if I agree with you, there's something in my brain that says, okay, you must not be safe because I know you could do the same to me behind my back. Criticism is so corrosive. And when other, when other people, you know, when they do things that seem to be worthy of criticism, what they really need is to be confronted, not criticized. And so I often say we talk to people, not about people. That's how it needs to be done in the Christian family. But that takes a lot of courage. It's hard. And then you also have here next a filthy language out of your mouth that covers a spectrum of foul-mouthed communication from cursing to lewd or inappropriate comments to improper remarks. This is not the kind of behavior that fosters open and vulnerable communication. All of these things move people away from trust and it keeps them isolated and alone. In Ephesians, I won't get you to turn there, but Ephesians 4 and 31, it adds two more words that are helpful to look at. One there is uh, bitterness. Bitterness can find its source in a host of potential issues, but when a person is bitter, it's hard to feel safe. It's hard to draw close to that person. It's hard to love them. Bitterness can come from resentment about past grievances or offenses. Unforgiveness shows up in bitterness. Bitterness can also come from perceived unfairness. That's a tricky one. From perceived unfairness. If I think something was unfair, I can get quite bitter about that. I think we've all been there. Bitterness can come from the secrecy of others. If I feel that information is being withheld from me, I'll be angry because why am I being excluded from that information? When a person is unsupported or feels unsupported in difficult times, they can become bitter about that. But when we're bitter, we present ourselves to the assembly with a demeanor that's frightening to other people. It's frightening to other people. And I know for myself, I find bitter people scary and I find them intimidating often. And that erodes a sense of safety. Now, Ephesians also tells us what the antidote to bitterness is. The antidote to bitterness is forgiveness, number one. Forgiving the people that harm us. And gratitude, being thankful for other people. So there are ways to deal with that. The other word I want to just um, lift out of Ephesians is the word clamor. Clamor. I think our best modern-day word for this is drama. 
It's the idea of the loud outcry, unhelpful, hyperbolic expressivity, where it's just like, it's too much drama. It's hard to define, but I think you, you know what I mean. Drama distracts people from what they need to be focusing on. It causes anxiety, sometimes it causes contempt, and I'm not warning against passion or enthusiasm or the vibrant personalities amongst us. We need our extroverts, but this is, this is drama kind of all on its own, and it erodes trust in a community of people. And it's interesting then, as we think about these different words and these different things that erode trust, most of them are tied to what comes out of our mouth, the words that we say. And the words that we use are so important as we talk to one another. I know in my life I've used words that I regret, and I haven't been able to take them back. We use words to talk to other people, and behind that there are thoughts that we have about other people. And when we get off track with these things, we begin to erode the love that we're working so hard to build up among us. You know, two of the characteristics of love in 1 Corinthians 13 address this issue. One is, it says that love does not behave rudely. But not just in the expression, it also says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love thinks no evil. A guileless way of thinking. It thinks no evil. And so I want to challenge you again tonight. Lots of challenges in this message. Not only to consider your words, but even your thoughts about God's people. Do you think evil of them? Do you think evil of them? Or do you give God thanks for them? I've just been, uh, and I've still got a ways to go, been reading a book about the prayers of Paul by D.A. Carson. But the part of this book that's absolutely floored me is that he's highlighted that Paul, in all of his prayers, he's constantly grateful for other Christian believers. When I pray for other Christian believers, I'm praying about everything that's wrong for them. I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is. And I'm reading this book, and Paul, most of the time, he's praying about what he's thankful for in other believers. And I'm just it's like, oh, I have to get my head around that. But this is, a, this is love thinks no evil, right? It's so easy to identify the flaws, so easy. And so the Spirit has some renovating to do yet in that part of my heart. But this is our first building block. It's trust. We need to behave in ways that demonstrate trustworthiness. Honesty, sincerity, forgiveness, gratitude, and avoid the sins that take away from trust. Now, the next building block after trust is vulnerability. And again, this, this is an ongoing nemesis of mine, but I don't think I'm alone. Vulnerability is not valued in Western society. It's particularly unfashionable among men. When you make yourself vulnerable to another person, you expose yourself to the possibility of harm. And by vulnerable, I don't mean willing to sin. I just mean willing to open up. Sometimes the word gets used pejoratively, but I'm talking about the willingness to open up. But when we do not open up to other people, we, when we don't show them what's going on inside our hearts, we can't form deep, meaningful relationships with others. That's why pet rocks will always just be a pet. It's just a rock. That thing doesn't open up to you. But people you can have relationships with. It's much more than a pet or a pet rock. So we're always then in this dilemma of having to choose between staying protected and hidden and lonely, which might feel safer, or moving towards opening up, towards disclosing to someone, to sharing, which means I potentially could be harmed, but I also get the benefit of closeness to someone else. Do you ever open up to someone else? I think you've all experienced this. You open up to someone else and you share with them from your heart, and there's that very real connection between you. And it's like, okay, someone has met with me in my pain or in my problem. And that feels so precious. But it's an act of vulnerability. It's an act of vulnerability. So let's talk about this vulnerability thing for a moment. It flows from trust. It's a necessary building block to loving others more deeply. It's even more necessary to being loved by others. And it's revealing enough of myself for others to identify with me. Revealing enough of myself to others for others to identify with me. This includes being able to show that I'm not perfect and I don't have it all together. It also means owning my own junk and being honest about imperfections and struggles and sins rather than only projecting a polished version of myself. Vulnerability is about me becoming comfortable with my own incompleteness. 
that all of the work that God needs to do in me is not done yet. I'm a work in progress. Vulnerability is talking about softer emotions that are present, but usually not ones that we admit to. Ones like fear, uncertainty, sadness, insecurity. It's also acknowledging my failures when it comes time to make things right with others and taking responsibility for my public and private decisions. These are vulnerable acts. Taking responsibility is an act of vulnerability. And especially when I do so without blaming others or without taking a victim's stance. Vulnerability is the willingness to open up so that others can see into your heart and life. And when we do this, we make ourselves relevant to other people. We're getting closer to this relevant topic now. We become relatable. And I'll come back to this in a moment. But I just, because this word is sometimes a little new for people, we have to ask the question, is it biblical to be vulnerable? And certainly the word itself I don't think is found in our Bibles. But the example is all the way through, through Scripture. In the Old Testament, you had strong, capable men, leaders like David. And he describes himself as poor and needy. When Moses wrote the Pentateuch, he records his own failures as well as his accomplishments, the works that God did through him. Our Lord Jesus Christ modeled vulnerability by taking three of his closest friends with him into the Garden of Gethsemane and asking them, asking them to stay with him through his profound, profound sorrow rather than just tapping it out on his own. That was a vulnerable act. The New Testament writers recorded their own failures. Paul repeatedly reports his own struggles and weaknesses. Even James, as he's teaching, he gives a very tangible example of how to be vulnerable. In, in chapter 5 of his epistle, he says, Confess your faults to one another that you may be healed. That's an act of vulnerability. So it is definitely biblical. It's just not very popular. It's just not very popular. And in our day, in a, in a an authentically vulnerable man is a countercultural phenomenon. It's rare. It's rare. But I believe it is a Christ-like virtue that needs to be restored into our lives and built back into the culture of our assemblies. But to do it first, you have to establish safety. You can't be vulnerable without trusting the people that you want to be vulnerable with. And that's why it's so critical that we deal with the list of interpersonal sins that we covered a few moments ago. Wrath, bitterness, envy, and so on has to be safe first. But just coming back to the relatable side of vulnerability, vulnerability does make us relatable. You know, two years ago, just to give you one aspect of this, two years ago I sent out a survey to assembly overseers, and over 100 Gospel Hall elders responded to that survey, which was great. And as I've mentioned elsewhere, the top concern reported on that survey was the apathy and, disengage and disengagement amongst the Lord's people. That was the number one concern of overseers. And I've been puzzling over that and praying over that for a couple of years. And I've started to see that there's a few distinct reasons for that disengagement that they're concerned about. And one of the key reasons is this very issue that we are talking about now. Vulnerability. And specifically the lack thereof. Again, if the, if the version of myself as a, as a teacher or as an overseer or as a leader, even a male in my home... If, if the version of myself that I present to my fellow assembly members or to my family members, whatever the context, if that's only ever polished and looking complete and sanctified, suit-wearing, Newberry-carrying version, like it's got it all together, that's a significant contributor to disengagement. It disengages the people. And why is this? Now, this has really challenged me as a leader as well. When the leadership in assemblies, especially with regards to now overseers and and even preachers who present a face for the truth, a front for the truth, or any brother that, that teaches the scripture in a local assembly in, in the role of a deacon, if we only ever show this polished version of ourselves, then the people in the audience, they're making a comparison to the person that's in front of them. And they're saying to themselves, I'm not like that guy. I'm not like him. He really has it all together. He seems like perfect. And I don't have it together. In fact, my life is quite messy compared to his. I can't be like him. I must be a failure. This is how it goes. And then the next step is, I don't belong here. I don't fit in because all these people have it all together. It's incredible. And I don't. I don't fit. 
being invulnerable to in front of other people actually shames them. It shames them. And that shame leads to disengagement because then the people listening feel like they can't ever measure up, so why would they bother? That's often the route it goes. The other route it might go is to participate in the facade and continue to perpetuate the masquerade. It could go that way as well, which also perpetuates the shame. And now you have shame built into the culture of your assembly. And that's very difficult to recover from. So vulnerability is one very significant key to being re relevant to one another, to being relatable, to fostering a genuine, vibrant, brotherly love in the assembly. Because now, instead of me showing you perfection, I'm talking about how we're struggling through all this tough stuff together. That's the shift towards vulnerability. And it really helps with engagement. You see this in verses like, uh, one example is Romans chapter 12, verse 15. When we are vulnerable, this is an example of vulnerability. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's vulnerability. That's bringing engagement. You're meeting people where they are. And instead of requiring them to be something they're not, whether it is rejoicing because they are or weeping because they weep, this is one of the many ways that relevant moments can happen between believers and it fosters brotherly love because we join together whether it's for good or for difficult moments. For that moment we are together and I'm meeting you where you are. And it needs to happen in our teaching as well. And I want to come back to the teaching further on this point for a moment. Performance-based Christianity is the idea that I have to do certain things to gain God's approval or to gain the approval of the assembly leadership. And typically those standards are external things. They're visible, they're tangible standards. They're usually not matters that God requires of believers, but that we've been taught are good and necessary for, for godly Christian living. But here's the problem. Anything that I require of you, that God does not require of you, in order to gain his approval, or in order to gain my approval, is just a gospel of works. That's all it is. And it's it is actually, I would encourage you to rebuke that when you see it, because it's actually Christ-exalting to rebuke a person who teaches in this fashion. We have that example for us in the book of Galatians. And it is Christ-exalting to stand firm in liberty, because we're commanded to do so in Galatians chapter 5 and 1. These things need to be stood against, because performance-based Christianity is irrelevant to the believer. It's not relevant at all. And the reason why it's not relevant is because the terms are of our salvation, they're based on faith and grace. They're not based on works in the law. They're already provided for. So if you want your assembly teaching to be relevant to the people of God, then your teaching cannot include legalism. It has to be pushed away, refuted, rebuked, cut off. If legalism is to be excluded from our teaching then on what basis will the people of God be built up? And we touched on this a little bit already in our first session. But edification can only come by grace through faith. And this means now that our teaching must also point to Christ as Lord and call the people of God to greater faith in God. To point them to Him. Because faith is God's choice for the basis of relationship. Faith is a beautiful thing because it's the only thing that we can give to God and not take any credit for the blessing that comes back from it. But the challenge is working out that faith in shoe leather. And this is where we come back to the importance of vulnerability. Because since the beginning of time, God's dealing with humankind. Our challenge has always been that of living by faith and living faithfully. It's hard to do. And in the book of Romans then, just follow me with this here, follow through with me here. This emphasizes the centrality of the role of faith, this book. The first example we're given there in the book of faith is that of Abraham. Abraham's faith was tried, not in some kind of abstract way, but in the very real context of, of trying to create and to keep offspring. He's trying to have a child. That's all he was trying to do. That's a really vulnerable struggle to record in Scripture, the struggle of infertility. And yet it's there. And it's tied to faith. The next example is David. And the words that he wrote in Psalm 32 are actually quoted in Romans 4. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. And we're told that his faith was accounted to him for righteousness. And that's in the context of his affair with Bathsheba. His attempt to cover that up with killing Uriah. And a period of time that he spent in denial about the whole affair. 
really vulnerable to have that on record in scripture. So what I'm trying to get to here is this mix of vulnerability and faith and being honest and relevant and relatable to each other. But I want you to see from these examples that in scripture, real people face real problems and they're given real answers from God. So when we take that kind of reality and we bring that into our ministry and we talk about the provision of God in and through Jesus Christ and saints are called to respond to that in faith, then we actually know as well that our ministry is relevant. It's not performance-based. It's calling people to greater faith in God. Your ministry and mine has to address the real issues of our lives. There's too many abstract ministry meetings. We need to talk about the things that people are struggling with, that we are struggling with, that our assemblies are struggling with. And as we talk about those things, as we teach from the Word of God, ultimately those messages must point people back to faith in God. Not to more rules, not to more performance. And people, the people of God respond to this. They, they want the word of God to speak into the real struggles of their lives. They want to hear about the struggles in your life. And they want that truth that he responds to that issue in their life. They want that spoken to them in love. And if you can speak to that issue, to that matter that's in their hearts, out of your own contrition, it makes your ministry relevant and powerful. And we need this kind of good teaching in our regular assembly meetings, not in our special ones, in our regular ones. Just brothers being real with one another and brothers and sisters in Sunday school classes talking about the things that matter and showing their own struggles. And then if that calls people to greater faith in God, it will be life-changing. It will be transformational for those people. So we have to be vulnerable in our teaching makes us more relatable this is very when when our when our ministry arrives at this point it's still very biblically based but it's incredibly relevant and we're relevant to one another it also has to be authentic as well another word authentic authenticity one mark of authenticity is being willing and able to state what i actually believe about something out loud this is a big challenge to my own heart I would prefer to stick to safe subjects for ministry meetings. And I would prefer to stick with the majority viewpoint, even when I know there are flaws in it, when it's unbiblical. It's a lot easier to give ministry in that regard. And it embarrasses me how reluctant I am to state what I really believe on some matters. This sounds easy, but it's hard. You know, there's a lot of issues that are hot topics in assemblies right now. And then I get surprised when I talk to brothers that do this full time, even ones that I would consider to be very conservative, and they also have similar beliefs, and their beliefs differ from traditional viewpoints, and they're not admitting what they believe, and they're not teaching what they believe, they're not being authentic. And this is no blame, I'm just as guilty, I'm just stating what's happening. There are parts also of how we function as a group of assemblies, that prohibits them from being honest with us. And then I also find that there are many overseers in the same position of myself. Nobody wants to stick their head over the parapet and say what's actually going on, to be authentic about their beliefs. You see, for me to tell you what I believe about certain things is actually a very vulnerable act, especially if I don't think my views are held by many others. And if I believe I could be persecuted for those views, you know, just over a month ago, I gave a very direct message, and some of you have referred to that here, at a conference. And it was basically saying that assemblies are not as great as we think they are, and that we need to repent and return to the scripture. And I've never had as widespread a response to a message as I had to that one. And I was terrified, terrified giving it. And this is no praise to myself. If you listen to the message, you'll hear a lot of umming and eyeing and stumbling over words. But that message came from God. And so to him be the glory. But here's my point. Every person who wrote me, and even those, some of you that have talked to me today, but every person who wrote me without exception did two things. They thanked me for the message. They encouraged me to continue following the Lord. And then they asked, second thing, how badly I was being attacked as a result of the message. Don't miss this. Don't miss this point. It was a given, an expectation that speaking the truth from an assembly conference platform 
would result in strong persecution from assembly believers. That's the norm that is expected. Now you tell me, what is wrong with assemblies that so many people in them believe that delivering a message from God will result in persecution from God's own people? That's a cultural problem. That's a problem that relates to love. I thank God for one preaching brother from Northern Ireland who wrote and reminded me that the Lord is my fortress. And indeed, he has been. But what I want to ask is this. I'm not looking for for pity, because there's nothing to pity me for. Why are we not free to teach what the Bible teaches? Why can't we be authentic about our beliefs with one another? Even if I am wrong, and can you call me out graciously on that? Can you respond to me? Can you speak to me in grace with an open Bible yourself? Why is that not permissible to say what we believe? Can we teach what the Bible says? We are heaping to ourselves teachers having itching ears. One of the challenges to making assemblies safe and to encourage authentic teaching and to making assemblies a place where we can actually be challenged from the word of God. Now, we're, we're, all this stuff as it relates to being relevant and relatable. One of the biggest issues against this is spiritual bullying. I had a conversation about this already today. Bullies destroy our sense of safety. They make people unwilling to take the risk of being vulnerable. They prevent the consideration of fresh ideas gleaned from the studies of, the, of God's word. They become the enforcers of formalism. They promote uniformity among the people of God. And sometimes this bullying happens from platforms. Sometimes it's in a Bible reading. Sometimes it's in a foyer discussion or in a living room in one of our homes. Sometimes, oftentimes, perhaps by email. But any time that we mock a different viewpoint than ours, rather than making room for a sincere scrutiny of it under the light of God's word, we bully that idea and we bully the person presenting it into silence. Now, I'm, I'm not asking us to be so open-minded about every idea, so open-minded as they say that our brains fall out. But, and I'm not asking us to be un-Berean. I'm asking us to think about how we respond to one another in love to be loving in our consideration of their thoughts and ideas, even if initially it maybe is a little shocking or it's a little different than what we expected. Spiritual bullying is intolerant of other viewpoints. And, and again, I'm not calling us to subjectivism, where it is like the worst thing that could happen, I think, is if we all sat around in a Bible reading and everybody had their own thought about what they believed. And it wasn't, we never, we left the impression that there's no objective truth anymore. That's not where we're going is towards subjectivism here. But you can have your belief and I can have mine, kind of, but we have to come back to this. This is what it comes back to, to search the scriptures, to ask about relevance to Christ. Does this matter to him, this issue that's important to you? Is, where is our loyalty to him and what we're facing? So can we not then take any idea and in a genuine and caring way, thoughtfully examine that idea in the light of God's word? Instead of just blowing it off or dismissing it or scoffing at it or trying to shut it down because we don't like it, we need to stand against bullying. And this comes back to challenges between older and younger believers as well, some of which we talked about earlier. You know, a, a single ill-advised reaction on the part of an older brother or an older sister, one poor reaction to a young believer's suggestion could shut them down for life. One poorly advised comment about a conviction that they don't hold, and you do, could see them gone from the assemblies for life. Or maybe, or maybe they don't share your conviction about something and they try to talk to you at that and you respond with harshness by dismissing them, maybe even having a judgmental or a mocking tone towards them. You will lose that young believer. And you'll lose them over an issue that's important to you that doesn't matter one whit to God. This is a tragedy that's happening every week in assemblies in North America. And it needs to stop. It needs to stop. We need to have that single-minded devotion to Christ in order to eliminate this problem. What does Christ think? Not me ramming my ideas down your throat or me being intolerant of your thoughts. But as Peter says, finally, all of you be of one mind. One mind having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, 
not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you are called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. And that one mind, that doesn't mean making everybody believe what I believe. It means every one of us together seeking the mind of Christ, not our own. And so we need to learn to love one another as we discuss truth. When we learn to love one another, even in the context of different convictions or different beliefs about how the word of God is carried out in our lives or in our assemblies, when we're courteous, when we're tender-hearted in this fashion, then it's safe enough to be authentic about what we believe. And when we can be authentic about what we believe, we can have more open discussions. We can collaboratively, together, we can pursue the mind of Christ. And we can then, as Epaphras or Ephesians says, we can speak the truth in love so that the body may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share. It causes growth for the edifying of itself in love. This can happen when we can talk about truth openly without bullying. And we miss out on so much when we allow spiritual bullying to be a part of our assembly culture. It stymies the working of the spirit in growing the body so that it edifies itself in love. Now we need to move on from this subject of vulnerability. Vulnerability, authenticity, those things based on trust. Let's go back to the big picture for a moment. I want to talk about love. That's where we're going next. Christ is our head. We're called to be loyal to him. We're called to seek those things which are above, not our own things. We organize our convictions then and our values around what matters to him and not to us. That makes us relevant to Christ. First session. Now as we're thinking about being relevant to one another, we commit to making our assemblies a safe place where people can trust one another enough to be vulnerable. That means we can begin to see into each other's lives. When I see that you're struggling with something that I struggle with, and when I see that you believe what I do, the same things, or that you respect our differing beliefs, then I can be authentic with you. And our vulnerability then leads to deeper connection, deeper brotherly love with one another. Because I know even if we see that particular issue differently, we share the greater goal of seeking the exaltation of Jesus Christ and the edification of his people. This is how we stop, by the way, denominationalism. And when we identify with one another because we're able to be vulnerable without fear of hurt or reprisal, that sense of acceptance in response to showing you a bit of myself, that fosters love. This is where love really starts to happen. Why don't we turn to that passage I was just quoting, Ephesians chapter 4, just back a few pages. Ephesians chapter 4. And we'll just read this together. It says he gave some to be apostles, Ephesians 4.11, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. So you have this very diverse group of activities. And it's for the edifying of the body of Christ. And then just jump for the sake of time down to verse 16. From whom, we had the head Christ just before that, but then from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. What Paul is describing here is this very diverse group of believers with different backgrounds, with different spiritual gifts, different areas of spiritual service, but they have one Lord, they have one faith, they have one baptism, one God and Father of all. And in verse 15, you see that they're speaking the truth in love. That's what it says in verse 15. They're speaking the truth to one another in love. And that is causing growth so that the whole assembly is building itself up in love. All of the parts working together, they're relevant to each other. They feel needed. They're all necessary. And now watch as Paul unfolds his instructions as how to, how to implement love in their practice as a community of believers. It's in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. That's community love at work. 
Interestingly, if you go to the institution of marriage in verse 25 of that chapter, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Just note the pattern between these two verses of implementing love. As he describes how to actually do love, he first points them to Christ. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Walk in love as Christ loved us. He points them to Christ first of all, and then he points them to the sacrifice of Christ next. Loving one another, if you want to do this in your assembly, it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you, it's going to be a sacrifice. If you're in your local church only to receive love and expecting that you'll have an uninterrupted supply of blissful affection from other believers, you've missed the point. Love looks like a bloody cross. That's the picture of love. Who loved us, gave himself for us. Loving like Christ is about what you give and what you give up, not about what you get. And I don't know exactly how that will play out in your life. I'm not going to give you the rules here either. But based on your gifts, based on the areas of service that God has for you, based on how he has uniquely fitted each of you as individuals and placed you into the body, somehow this work of love, this sacrifice of love is going to play out. And when you love others well, you're going to be sacrificing. You're going to give of yourself, of your energy, of your resources. You'll have to learn how to forgive. That's a sacrifice. That's the sacrifice of, of letting go of the right to be offended. You're going to have to give of yourself. You're going to have to forgive. You're going to have to learn to serve without grumbling. You may have to learn to show hospitality without it always being reciprocated. Let's make it really practical. You're going to bake more cookies than you're going to eat. It's probably healthier that way anyways. <laughs> you're going to give more hugs and you're going to have a little more squeeze than you're going to get back. You'll count up more gospel messages than converts. You'll have more tears often than smiles. And if your ministry is on a platform, you'll spend more hours studying in private than you will preaching in public. But when we take up the cross in this way, we're showing love to one another. And we'll have the joy then of seeing God at work causing the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. God wants to use you this way in your assembly. And this is how love happens. There's trust. There's vulnerability. There's authenticity because we're being real with each other. And then we're loving on one another, even though there's sacrifice involved with that. And as we stumble towards learning to do this well, that love then turns to something even more precious. It turns to a sense of belonging. Belonging. You know, when individuals come together with a group of others, and that, those others have shown them brotherly love, like what we've described, so that they feel, this is my family. Then they experience belonging. And this is what we want people in our assemblies to know. As they come, we're not perfect. We don't have it all together. But this is our family. It's our church family, our assembly family. Have you ever felt that in your assembly? Like, this is my family. I'll never forget the weekend where uh, I decided to replace the shingles on my house out in Saskatchewan. Got the old ones torn off on a Friday night off the roof. And a family from the hall came over to help. That was really nice of them. I got half the roof back on on Saturday with another couple helpers from the hall. And that was really nice too. And then Sunday morning I woke up <clears throat> to a busy day at the Lord's people and a forecast for rain on Monday morning. And we'd only finished the easy half of our roof, the one without all the peaks or anything. So I asked for help. That was an act of vulnerability. And after vibrating, I had 14 people on my roof. And everything was sealed in by the end of gospel meeting. And you know what came out of that? Those are my people. Those are my people. This is my family. I had a real need. Couldn't fix it myself. They met the need. They responded. And that responsive, I mean, you can see this is, this is stuff that goes in the heart, right? That responsiveness to vulnerability is what creates belonging. I feel a sense of belonging with them that's very, very unique. And honestly, like, Saskatchewan might be the most ridiculous place on earth to live. 
I hope this doesn't get back there, but the winters are horrible. The mosquitoes in summer, they're so bad, they have, they're so big, they, the FAA wants to give them tail numbers. It's a pain in the neck to travel to and from the place because it's in the middle of nowhere. But those are my people. And you can't just land into that. You can't just land into that. It's a very special experience. So I'm staying put. Now, I don't want to paint too ideal a picture. There's, there's folks there that don't see eye to eye with me and everything. But I think one of the things that is a powerful contributor then to our sense of belonging is not only that in, in the community we respond to one another's vulnerabilities, to one another's needs, but there's something that the early church did when they, when they gathered that, that we very few assemblies do anymore. And in our assembly, we eat a meal together every week. We have a meal together. We have the Lord's Supper, yeah. But after that, we have a 90-minute break and we eat a meal together every Sunday. It's potluck. It's not... Uh, keto or paleo or gourmet or takeout. Sometimes there's too much food. Honestly, sometimes there's not enough food, and I get to make the awkward announcement about that. But we all eat together, and we visit, and we enjoy friendship with one another. And I would encourage every assembly to have a meal together, not even a gospel supper or something for Sunday school families or outreach, but just for yourselves. It's a very biblical practice. I mean, you don't have to exclude other people, but it's a very biblical practice to focus that meal on your own company. And as long as, I mean, you see some warnings in Corinthians about this, as long as everyone is sharing food equally and there's no pulling rank or special tables for rich people here and poor people there, none of that, it will foster belonging in your sense of assembly. It's a beautiful thing. Consider having a meal together. And, and, and we have these things in Scripture that we can follow that are simple, but they work. And in contrast to that, in contrast to that, we have some rather carnal tactics that we use to try to create a sense of belonging or to simulate it. Think about these tactics for a moment. Tactics that we use to keep people in our assemblies, to make them think they belong here. It's kind of an icky list, but I'm going to end on a positive note, so just bear with me. And in fairness, other gatherings do the same things. So we're not especially picking on ourselves. We tell ourselves that we are the gathering place. We have the best truth going anywhere else would be departure or backsliding. That's trying to create a sense of belonging. We're the elite club. You should stay. Or what do we say about people who leave? Oh, they were not of us. They didn't belong, really. They didn't cut the mustard, like, because we have good mustard. That's a premise based on the sin of pride and arrogance. Another tactic, we claim the special presence of Jesus Christ with us above all other places. That's prideful. Or we openly condemn the practices of evangelical churches, even if those practices are helping God's people there, just because we see them as having less divine light than ourselves. Therefore, you should stay where we really have it figured out. It's trite, it's arrogant. We isolate people from other kinds of gatherings, from other kinds of Christians. That really is just cultish. That's all it is. These are attempts to create belonging. They're not biblical, they're carnal. So let me ask you this. Food for thought as you leave today. If we decided that we would no longer use shaming tactics to stop people from going to other gatherings or to other churches, and if we decided we'd no longer use the idea that we're the best kind of church on the planet as a reason for people to stay, in our assembly, if we dispensed with the unbiblical idea that once you cross the line and visit another kind of church, you're out of fellowship, if we got rid of all these kind of tactics, how would we actually get people to stay in our assembly? What would keep them here? What would foster belonging? What would, what would do this if we don't have all these little games that we've been guilty of playing? And I think it's a really good question to face. It's challenging stuff. Because if you can't manipulate people into staying, in other words, if you can't use negative tactics to keep people here, then you're going to have to use biblical tactics. Biblical means to do so. What is really going to keep people in your local assembly so that they're like, those are my people. This is my family. What's going to get them to say that? Number one, a shared devotion, commitment, loyalty to the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Really gathering to his name in sincerity, not just to a way of doing things. Matthew 18 and 20, session one. Number two, a sense of belonging built on brotherly love for one another, care 
time spent together, not just doing meetings, but in the action of brotherly love being carried out. That's the second commandment that the Lord referred to in his top two list of commandments, way back at the start of the message. Number three, very important, good spiritual nourishment. Relevant teaching. I don't need a verse for this. How about we just take the entire New Testament for this? Apostles, disciples, dealing with real issues, talking about it, teaching what they got from God and taking what they had from God and passing it on to the people. Those three things, and probably there's more. I'd be interested to hear other thoughts on this as well. But for the sake of simplicity, devotion to Christ, a sense of belonging, spiritual food. This is the difference in keeping people because they want to be there because they feel like they, or versus they feel like they have to be here. It's the difference between Christ as a gathering center and using some kind of a wall to keep people in. It's the difference between grace and the law. It's the difference between relevance and irrelevance. And so, brothers and sisters, there are so many beautiful ways and opportunities to create belonging, not only in these larger strategic mindsets and attitudes, but even in daily and weekly moments with one another. Why use carnal tactics? Why use philosophical viewpoints to corral people? Why not love one another as Christ loved us? This is my challenge. Thanks for your patience with me tonight. We've talked about relevance to Christ earlier today, and now we've talked about relevance to one another. Tomorrow, Lord willing, we'll look at how to be relevant to the community around about us, both as individuals and as a local church. Thank you.